0: every single person on Earth who had access to a TV set, and that would be about 600 million of us, watched the blurry, almost surreal image of Neil Armstrong stepping live onto the surface of the moon. But after Apollo 11 returned to Earth, we got an entirely different view of those first historic moments. In part four of what we saw, we'll give you the sharp, full-color view of that one small step from a perspective that no one has shared before. We'll watch how one race against the Soviets ended with a win, and the one against the U.S. Congress resulted in a defeat. So, join us for the journey of Apollo 11, the seven Apollo missions that followed, and decades of disappointments crowned at last with a new hope. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard.
1: five four three two one zero liftoff we have a liftoff 32 minutes past the hour liftoff on apollo 11. tranquility we copy you on the ground you got a bunch of guys about to turn blue we're breathing again thanks a lot you're looking good here The uh, vehicle is surprisingly free of any uh, debris floating around. It's very clean. The uh, restraints in here do a pretty good job of pulling my pants down. Roger. We haven't quite got that before the 50 million TV audience yet.
0: There have been a lot of great stage entrances in history, but I'm pretty sure that the one made by Neil Armstrong, seen by over 600 million people live on TV, is not one that's going to be surpassed anytime soon. So after a final check of helmets, visors, gloves, life support packs, tools, cameras, and all the rest, all of it within the space of a decent sized standard bedroom closet, Aldrin began to depressurize the Eagle. There were no seats in the LM. When America landed on the moon, we landed on our feet. By God, we did it six times. So now try to imagine two very fit men in their late thirties jammed into that closet and each of them are wearing suits they're not too far away from the one used by the guy playing the Stay puffed Marshmallow Man in Ghostbusters. Just bending over enough to open the small hatch down at knee level between the two standing positions was kind of a major effort. Now what was about to happen next was, in my opinion, the pinnacle of human history. That descent down the ladder is so iconic, it's so untarnishable, it can't be ruined, Which. Kind of makes me feel a little better because frankly when we think of men from planet earth first setting foot upon the surface of another world you want to believe that neil armstrong eyes on a far horizon stepped manfully out of the darkness of the limb he surveyed the landscape hands on his hips perhaps nodded and then walked down the golden staircase it kind of makes me feel a little crummy to be the one to point out that when armstrong aldrin and the 10 americans to follow first emerged from their lunar module They did so on their knees, crawling, going backwards, and moving very, very slowly. Okay,
1: Houston, I'm on the porch. Roger, Neil. Okay, everything's nice and straight in here. Okay, can you pull the door open a little more? Right.
0: Houston, uh, this Neil radio check. It's a pretty smart move by Neil there, you know. If you've got the entire planet Earth tuned in, you probably want to do a sound check before you start the show.
1: This is Houston, loud and clear. Break, break, Buzz, this is Houston. Uh, radio check and verify TV circuit breaker in.
0: Now back in that New York hotel room where I was watching live as a 10 year old, we still couldn't see anything. But right about here, after helping Armstrong out of the hatch, Buzz Aldrin moves to the right window of the Lem, that's the Lunar Module's pilot station, it's where he belongs. And he starts rolling motion picture film, which of course we wouldn't see until they returned from the moon and we'd gotten it developed. Now, the image is jumpy for a few seconds, then it kind of stabilizes. Buzz must have braced himself to steady the image because it jiggles just a little bit as he checks the circuit breaker. Roger, TV circuit breaker's in.
1: And 5 Claire. Roger.
0: Now, from where he's standing, Aldrin, and, and the camera he's holding can only see about half of the frame. The entire left half of the image is just black and gray. It's the circular nose of the lem jutting forward, blocking the view of the small platform at the top of the ladder just outside the hatch called the porch. Then right at the edge of that diagonally split frame, we see a moment of movement. It's a backpack. And then as he gets onto the ladder, we see just the left quarter of Armstrong. We see an arm, a leg, the backpack. The image is a little bit dark, so Aldrin opens it up a spot. Then the light levels come up. Okay now, it's not a squiggle anymore. Right there, on the top of his left shoulder, there's a definite patch of red, white, and blue. It's a flag. It's our flag. There's another camera bump as Neil steadies himself at the head of the ladder. You can't get a good clear look at his face because you're looking down at him from the limb looking down on the top of his helmet, but it's clear that his golden visor is up, you can definitely see that there's some kind of head inside that helmet. And
1: we're getting
0: a picture on the TV. Oh, you got a good picture, huh? Uh, No, uh, Buzz, they don't have a good picture. Aldrin's speaking as a test pilot here. When he says you got a good picture, that means the damn thing's actually working. That's about all you can say about it. I couldn't make any sense out of the image at all.
1: Uh, There's a great deal of contrast in it, and uh, currently it's upside down on our monitor, but we can make out a fair amount of detail.
0: The entire world is watching that live, blurry TV image, but I want to stay with what Aldrin is seeing up in the LEM. He's looking down from the right side of the Eagle. He's filming Neil Armstrong as he's working. The image is still a little bit blurry, but it's in color, and it is far better than what's coming up from a late 60s handheld TV camera. I'm uh, at the foot of the ladder. Then you can see Neil Armstrong looking down. He's holding on to the base of the ladder. He actually leans back a little bit to get a better look at the four lunar landing pads.
1: The foot pads are only uh, depressed in the surface about uh, one or two inches, although the surface appears to be uh, very, very
0: fine-grained as you get close to it. It's almost like a powder. Now, as we keep watching the footage shot from inside the LEM, Aldrin moves a little. You can see the blurry reflection of his pressure suit moving across the window. Neil is looking straight ahead and he's looking down. He's in the shadow of the eagle, and that shadow stretches up and across the right side of the frame all the way to the top. It's ominous and imposing the shadow of that lunar module. Then there's a moment, just a quick beat, as if he's rehearsing the line he wrote in his head. Here comes the greatest moment in human history, and here is a man speaking as calmly as he possibly could. Know, step off the you can see the tether straining a little as he moves slightly to the left. He's looking down now at his left foot, which is invisible below the frame. And then you can actually see him shift his weight. You can actually tell from his posture that he's stepping on dust that's giving away just a little. Then he does something else I didn't notice before. You can actually watch him pushing down, maybe five or six times, damping down the gray talcum powder of the surface the way you would if you were standing on snow. He's testing to make sure it's going to support his weight. Up in the LEM, from our point of view, Aldrin's reflection is moving across the glass. Armstrong is looking down at his left boot. That's
1: one small step for man, one,
0: For For the first and only time during this entire run of footage, Armstrong glances up almost to see if Buzz got the shot. But of course, that's just my Hollywood background talking. Armstrong was looking right at Aldrin. And for half a second, you can see the eyes of the man who just stepped off of his spacecraft and into immortality.
1: Uh, Buzz, this is Houston. F2, Buzz, 1, 160 a second for shadow photography on the sequence camera.
0: And then, just like that, he goes back to work. He starts describing the texture of the lunar dust.
1: I can pick it up loosely with my toe. It does adhered in the fine layers, uh, like uh, powdered charcoal, to the, uh, the soul and sides
0: of my boot. What we saw all around the world was a barely legible blob moving against a black background, as if he really were stepping out onto the stage of history and reading his line. But if you watch it from above, You can see all of the nuance, all the hesitation, and then you actually get to watch for a moment as Neil Armstrong prepares himself to step out onto the moon. This demystifies the entire moment. It becomes less iconic, becomes less abstract, becomes less historic, and it becomes far, far, far more human. When Neil Armstrong was just another test pilot like Chuck Yeager and most of the rest of the Mercury and Gemini astronauts out at Edwards Air Force Base, he naturally enough fell into the small circle of men who had a 25% chance of being killed every time they went up to test a new aircraft. They had their own language, these men. They had their own insults. They had their own compliments. A lot of it was the dark humor that protects you from watching so many people being killed in a seat you'd just been in or one you were about to be in.
1: 1201. Roger. 1201 alarm. Roger. 1202. We copy it. We've lost all data with uh, Eagles. Please have it. reapply on a high gain
0: over. Emotion, any kind of emotion, is fatal for men like this when a never-before-seen computer error kept reappearing at the worst possible moment during the descent, it's the lack of emotion in Armstrong's and Aldrin's voice that's what's keeping them alive. And we'll be right back after a message from our sponsor. And that sponsor is NetSuite. Look, you may or may not know this, but this program is recorded from deep inside the Rocky Mountains here at Apollo Backup Mission Control. Now, down here, we have our pretty simple financial needs, really. We have a monthly budget for Tang and space food sticks. There's a dry cleaning bill for the suit and formaldehyde drip for the host. But other than that, it's really pretty simple. However, if you run a real business in the real world, you probably realize that keeping track of your money is really the entire problem. And one of the problems is is that you have all these different systems for keeping track of the money. Sales has their own system. Accounting has one. Inventory's got one. Too much time, too many resources, and that ends up hurting the bottom line. So listen to this thing called NetSuite by Oracle. That's business management software. It's cloud-based, and it handles every aspect of your business, and it gives you the visibility to control the money that you need to be able to see in one place and control. With NetSuite, you save time, money, and a lot of unneeded headaches because sales, finance... Accounting orders HR all of that money's in one place. You can get to it from your desktop and you can get to it from your phone. That's why NetSuite is the world's number one cloud-based business system. And right now, NetSuite is offering you valuable guide called Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits. You can get that at netsuite.com/apollo. That's netsuite.com/apollo for your free guide Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits. netsuite.com/apollo the 1202 program alarm now look i don't for an instant mean to seriously compare what i'm about to say with what they actually experienced but it's as close as i have to come up to that kind of moment and it's the only way i can kind of explain to you how it feels during moments like that i was on my dress rehearsal flight for my instrument check ride and by some miracle santa monica airport was actually ifr instrument flight rules meaning that a low cloud ceiling ruled out visual flight references In other words, it was the only time during my entire instrument training that I was going to fly into actual weather, instead of wearing the hood that I'd worn to keep me looking down at the instruments and not out the window at yet another perfect day in paradise. My flight instructor was in the right seat. We got our clearance, I read it back, we added power, and 10 seconds after the wheels were off the runway, we'd entered clouds so thick that I could not see the stubby wingtips just a few feet away on the Piper Archer instrument trainer, just a puddle jumper, really. Now, I reached a certain intersection determined by radio beams, and I started a right-climbing turn towards Burbank. Now, between me and that airport were the Santa Monica Hills, And they're not really hills, maybe 1,500 feet high, actual mountains. And I've driven over them thousands of times. I know they're there. I started the right turn towards the hills. Climb rate looked good. My turn and bank indicator indicated a turn to the right. But my primary instrument, my artificial horizon, told me that I was making a descending turn to the left. Now, at that exact instant, I could feel, I could actually feel that little red-eyed rat of sheer panic starting to nibble on my ankles. I turned to my flight instructor. I told him my primary instrument was indicating a turn in the wrong direction. I looked at him to tell me what to do. He did tell me what to do. Kick its ass. That's what he said. And then in that instant, I felt a lever, a big one, kind of get thrown somewhere in the back of my head. Okay. Panic is completely gone now. Now all I have to do is kick this thing in the ass. I had turned to the right. It felt like we were turning to the right, but that didn't mean a thing. Thousands and thousands of pilots have died in exactly that fashion. All I knew was that I was flying in the general direction of a mountain range and that in every contest between the ground and the airplane, the ground has won every single time. Trust your instruments. So what are they telling me? Well, the simple bank and turn indicator shows a turn to the right. The far more sophisticated artificial horizon is indicating a turn to the left. So I looked down at the gyroscopic heading indicator and also at the simple compass just up there on the dash. Both of those were showing a turn to the right. The artificial horizon was outvoted. I covered it up with a black suction cup bought precisely for this kind of emergency so that it would not distract me with false information. Now, as required by regulations, I radioed air traffic control and I advised them that I was in instrument conditions and that my primary instrument had failed. So Cal Departure replied with, and I quote, Roger, say intentions. And what I wanted to say was that I intended that someone on the ground would get a fire truck with a big f***ing ladder and get me the hell out of this damn thing. What I actually said was that we would continue the ILS, the instrument landing system approach into Burbank, which is what we did. And there was no moving map. I just had two needles against a black background. I had to keep them centered. It took us just an instant for us to descend through that cloud layer. And when we did, I looked up and I saw the approach lights of Burbank Airport. Now, I was slightly to the left of the center line and my instructor was slightly to the right of it. At that exact instant, I felt like the Lord of all creation. If I had not been able to suppress that emotion, if I let that little rat get to my knees, if I panicked. I wouldn't be here. I'd be mixed with small bits of aluminum in a charred spot somewhere on the left of where the 405 goes over Sepulveda Pass. And I've had three engine failures in single-engine airplanes, two of those in experimental aircraft. And all three of those times, I felt that lever getting thrown in the back of my head and that sick sense of fear just kind of fall away. I'm alive to tell these true tales of adventure because my primary flight instructor named Jeff Larkin told me something as we walked out to our two-seat Grobe glider just before my first flying lesson back in 1991. Billy said, it's probably never going to happen, but if something does go wrong up there, you, you are going to leave that airplane and your reptile brain is going to take over. My job is to make sure that the reptile knows what to do. Now, I'm saying all of this because I want you to understand that emotion is fatal for test pilots. And as I said, this shows up in the language that test pilots use. No one ever said to Neil Armstrong, none of his pilot friends anyway, no one ever said, wow, what an amazing job, Neil, we're just so damn proud of you. A colleague might, if he had survived extraordinarily trying circumstances, have a chance to maybe under his breath say to Neil Armstrong, you, sir, are a steely-eyed missile man. A big mistakes also have their own sardonic, emotionless tone. You didn't crash, you augured in. You didn't leave a flaming, smoking crater on someone's property. You ruined the guy's place. So your last act on earth was to do the right thing. You bought the farm. Now, If you messed up badly and somehow managed to survive, well, that was like sneaking into your girlfriend's house, creeping silently up the darkened stairs, expertly sliding past her snoring father with a shotgun at his side, and then entering the wrong room and end up screwing the pooch. Neil Armstrong was the most steely-eyed of missile men during the entire mission. The question for history is, did Neil screw the pooch when it came time to utter the most monumental words in human history?
1: That's one
0: small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind doesn't make any sense. In that sentence, man and mankind are interchangeable. What he intended to say was, that's one small step for a man, One giant leap for mankind, which is absolutely perfect. It's Shakespeare coming from an engineer. Now, a half century later, we still reverently report the world's most famous botched line. But not too long ago, certainly before he died, a couple of audio engineers told Neil Armstrong that they had put some serious computer power into the actual broadcast that he made from the moon those two audio guys discovered what they believed to be an almost instantaneous radio heterodyne. That is, when two radio signals are both communicating on the same frequency at the same time, they block each other out. According to the analysis of these two audio experts, Armstrong's A in A Man was spoken, but it was actually blocked. I will say this, just try saying it out loud for yourself. That's one small step for a man, See how easy it is to swallow, but still say, that missing A? Tell me if you
1: got a picture, Houston. Well, we've got a beautiful picture, yeah.
0: Neil. Now, there's a great film sequence, same position, up there in the limb, looking down, and it's a picture of Neil. He's got his visor up. His face is clearly visible for the only time during the entire mission, as Aldrin filmed him grabbing what was called the contingency sample. That's just a real quick scoop of moon dust in case some emergency caused them to have to cheese it out of there ahead of schedule. It has a
1: stark beauty all its own. It's uh, like much of the high desert of uh, the United States. It's uh, different, but it's very pretty
0: out here. It's really not much to look at, honestly, but it's important footage because a moment later, Aldrin would stop filming from the LEM as he prepared to join Armstrong on the surface. That little clip is important because it's the only time that we can actually make out Neil Armstrong's face. As soon as Aldrin stops filming from the limb, Aldrin will perform the bulk of the actions while Neil does almost all of the photography. In virtually every Apollo 11 image you see of an astronaut on the moon, that astronaut is Buzz Aldrin. Neil Armstrong essentially disappears once Buzz gets his boots on the moon. Twenty minutes after Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin exited the Eagle by crawling back out of the hatch and onto the porch of the LEM. Armstrong was there to film this in great detail. How far are
1: my feet from here? Okay, is? you're right at the edge of the porch. I
0: want to uh, back up and partially close the hatch. Buzz wasn't joking about being locked out of the LEM either. Making sure not to lock it on my way up. If the hatch had fully closed, it would have been very difficult, perhaps impossible, for them to get back inside. Now, that would be the ultimate screw the pooch moment in all of human history. He got the only laugh I personally ever heard from Neil Armstrong. Making sure not to lock it on my way (laughs) out. That's our home for the next couple hours and we want to take good care of it. Just like Armstrong before him, by backing out, Aldrin is not able to see anything of the lunar surface until the final jump onto the lunar module's footpad. When he's finally able to turn around, the shock of it is just electrifying. Beautiful view. Is that
1: something? Magnificent sight out
0: here. Magnificent desolation. Magnificent desolation. That's exactly right, Buzz. Armstrong then walks over to the remote TV camera that had taken pictures of him coming down the ladder, but he changes the setting on the lens. Okay, Houston, I'm going
1: to change lenses on
0: you. Sure. Roger, Neil. Now, this new shot is much better. Through the gray cathode tube scan lines, we can see both men. They're standing very close together. They're right up against the ladder. But
1: those who haven't uh, read the plaque uh, will read the plaque that's on the front landing gear of this lamp.
0: Now, for some reason, Neil Armstrong's Midwestern accent seems to go into full afterburner, and just for this moment. Airmen from the planet
1: Earth, first set foot upon the moon, July 1969, 50. became
0: came in peace for all mankind. You know, a lot of people, both in America and abroad, like to characterize us as these mindless, jingoistic knuckle-draggers waving our giant foam fingers with we're number one on them while we're chanting, USA, USA, USA. But if there was ever a more graceful, more humble, or a more generous message than the one tied to the leg of the eagle, I've yet to hear it. Here, men from the planet Earth first set foot upon the moon, July 1969 AD. We came in peace for all mankind. Ready for the camera? Neil, yeah,
1: this is Houston, we're copying.
0: Instruments were then placed on the surface. A thin pole was hammered with some significant effort into the hard lunar rock underneath the dust, and an American flag was put up.
1: Roger, the EVA is progressing beautifully. I believe they're setting up the flag now.
0: It had been stiffened with wire, so it gave the general appearance of blowing in the non-existent wind. Now, if they hadn't done this, it would have just simply hung limply from the pole and would have essentially been invisible. Planting that flag on the moon, was the only Cold War victory parade that we would ever have. Oh,
1: it's beautiful, Mike, it really is. They've got the flag up now, and you can see the stars and stripes on the limit. up now, and you can see the and on the Beautiful, just
0: beautiful. It was what the Marines raising the flag on Iwo Jima's Mount Suribachi meant to our fathers and mothers. It was proof, in this case, in living color that all of the years of effort and sacrifice, all the lost blood and lost treasure spent to make good on a challenge made by a young president who, like Lincoln, did not get to see the great struggle that we had finally overcome. So it's small wonder that after the mission, looking back on all of the computer failures, the close calls, the near misses that they had to get to in order to land on the moon, Buzz Aldrin stated without hesitation that of all the jobs I had to do on the moon, the one I wanted to go the smoothest was the flag raising. Now, two hours and 15 minutes may seem like a decent stretch of time for a first walk on another planet, and it is. But one thing that absolutely blew my mind was the size of the ground that they actually covered. Imagine looking down at a Major League Baseball diamond. You put the limb on the pitcher's mound, and each leg extends exactly to the circle where the clay meets the grass. The entire moonwalk, virtually all of it, doesn't only take place in the infield. Virtually all of it takes place inside the baseline. Now there's one excursion over to the home team dugout to set up a camera, and there's a little loop just past first base in foul ball territory. And finally, the single greatest trek by far is a solitary walk about halfway into right center field to examine the rim of a small crater. That's it. With the Lem on the pitcher's mound, not counting that one brief foray about twice the distance to second base, Pretty much the entire moonwalk takes place inside the clay of the infield. It's actually on the grass in the center of the diamond. It's absolutely shocking. You know, I think looking back on it, history went out of her way to be particularly fair to Armstrong and Aldrin. Both men landed simultaneously, of course, but Neil Armstrong was, is, and forever will be the first man on the moon. But There's a curious kind of symmetry at work here. For while Armstrong's name became history and then legend, the fact remains that all of our memories of that breathtaking event really belong to Aldrin. That bootprint on the moon, every single drop of sweat and blood, and every single cent that the Apollo program ended up spending, could be crystallized forever in that one image of that bootprint on the moon. It was Buzz Aldrin's boot? That image of an American astronaut crisply saluting the American flag? That's Aldrin, too. And what's rightfully been called the most famous picture in history? It's a man standing casually, almost idly, on the surface of another world. He's anonymous due to the golden visor needed to protect his eyes from the brilliant, unfiltered sunlight. Well, that's Aldrin, too. Now, you can't see his face, but if you look closely, there's a word printed on the spacesuit in that picture. Of the first moon landing that picture of the space age that picture that's going to last as long as humans last and that word is aldrin so which one would you rather be the immortal name in the history books or the person in an equally immortal picture Where's the entire idea? Ridiculous. Kind of like the idea of a one-sided coin. Neil Armstrong's name would not have been written without Buzz Aldrin. Aldrin's picture would not have been captured without Armstrong behind the camera. And that's actually my very favorite thing about that image of an Apollo astronaut on the moon. If you look closely, you'll see Aldrin's name. But if you look even closer, you'll see that Neil Armstrong is in the shot as well. He's reflected in the mirror-like visor. It's how it should be too, I think. Each man reflecting the other with neither face visible as if any one of the 350,000 people who powered this journey could be behind that faceplate. Maybe it's Ed White behind the golden glass or Gus Grissom or Roger Chaffee. Maybe it's the entire human race hidden in that small little bubble brought up from Earth. Maybe it's me in that picture. Maybe it's you.
1: On Columbia, this is the backup crew. Our congratulations for yesterday's performance, and our prayers are with you for the rendezvous. Over. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, Jim. Tranquility base. uh, It's beautiful.
0: And then, it was over. Not just the mission, the entire program. The idea of dreams made real, the spirit of the space age, was over. We just didn't know it yet. Here's to power up. Go ahead, 11. Neil and Buzz climbed back into the Eagle. They sealed the hatch. They stowed the samples, and they prepared for liftoff. But while he was trying to find a place for a big bag of moon rocks, Aldrin accidentally hit the control console of the Lem with this giant sack of rocks. And he broke something. And what he happened to break turned out to be the switch that's going to fire the ascent stage to get them back up into lunar orbit. Rendezvous with Mike Collins in Columbia, and then go home. There's a story I've heard. I've heard it twice from people who actually knew Buzz Aldrin, and despite all the research I did for this program, I was never able to find out if it's true or not. Actually, you know what? I don't care if it's true. It's perfect whether it happened or not. I love this story because, to me, it perfectly captures the difference in attitude between how we thought during the space age versus how we think today. Here's the story. Many, many years after the flight of Apollo 11, a young journalist was interviewing Buzz Aldrin on television. She'd read about Buzz accidentally smashing the switch that's gonna bring them home. And then she asked him, with the perfect kindness and sensitivity of modern America, if Buzz began to give some thought to what he would tell his wife and children before the air ran out. During those final moments, did he or Armstrong discuss what their final words to Earth would be? And would Buzz be willing to share that with us after all these years? Now, according to legend, Buzz Aldrin stared at her for a moment as if she'd asked this last question in some kind of foreign language. And once he realized that she was serious, he supposedly leaned forward and said, we weren't thinking about any last words. We're trying to figure out how to fix the goddamn switch. I do love that story so. Armstrong, Aldrin and Collins all made it home safely. Turns out a felt tip pen was just the right size to close the contact on that broken switch. Now there's a picture of Neil Armstrong in the LEM, taken by Aldrin of course, just a few minutes after they'd repressurized the Eagle and removed their helmets. First man on the moon looks tired. He looks very tired. He needs a shave and probably needs a shower as well. His eyes appear swollen and red, but the look on his face is just transcendental. The eyes and the smile are not those of a 38-year-old steely-eyed missile man. Neil Armstrong looks exactly like a six-year-old kid seeing a shiny new bike in front of the tree on Christmas morning. It's a real smile, but those blue eyes appear to be just a little bit watery. It's kind of our first time at Disneyland look. You're just so happy you don't know what else to do but cry. I think that photo is one of the most remarkable pictures ever taken of anyone. There's no other photos of Armstrong that even comes close. There's joy in that look, the kind of deep, deep pride you must feel after finally realizing that you've just done the single most difficult task in the history of the world. And there's not just pride in those eyes either. There's an overwhelming sense of relief. It's it's strong enough to come forward half a century and still knock the wind out of you. 600 million people, that was everyone on earth who could get to a TV set, had watched this one man carry the weight of all humanity. The dreams and sweat of the 375,000 people who worked on Project Apollo were with him too, as well as the blood of Gus Grissom, Ed White, Roger Chaffee, Elliot C., and Charlie Bassett, any one of whom might have been the person in the picture if luck and timing had gone a different way. Neil looks like a man who has the satisfaction of having carried all of that weight for all of that time and finished the job without screwing the pooch. Now Apollo 11 was the first of six lunar landings, but something had ended once those parachutes appeared in the sky and Columbia came down and splashed into the ocean. Space race was over, war was over, and we won. But without that tightly wound spring, It would end up shocking all of us Apollo kids who'd grown up in the space age and thought that this was just the very beginning of an endless adventure. But how fast everything could come to an end and disappear like a rocket contrail heading ever higher into the heavens.
1: Three, two, one, zero. All engines running, commit.
0: Off. Apollo 12 may have been the worst sequel in showbiz history. Tranquility Base 2, Electric Boogaloo. Uh, yeah, there were some decent moments. Apollo 12 got struck by lightning on the way up. That was pretty cool. Although, just like the near disaster on the landing of Apollo 11, we wouldn't know just how serious that was until many years later. Okay, we just lost the platform, gang. I don't know what happened here. We had everything in the world drop out. Actually, Apollo 12 got hit twice. The first strike at 36 seconds knocked all three fuel cells offline. A second strike at 52 seconds knocked out Apollo 12's artificial horizon indicator. These two lightning strikes lit every warning light in the capsule called Yankee Clipper and every light back at Mission Control as well. It looked like that crew escape rocket was going to get a chance to be on live TV after all. No one at that instant knew just how badly Yankee Clipper had been damaged. Apollo 12, Houston. Uh, We can start
1: getting that platform squared away. Uh, Go IMU power standby and then back to on and we'll get her caged up.
0: The electrical, environmental, and consumables manager known as ECOM in Mission Control was operated at that moment by a man named John Aaron. He alone recognized the pattern of the failures from an earlier test when a power supply on an instrumentation unit just blew a fuse. Now this is where the dividends pay off when you treat a flight crew like a group of individuals rather than a technological army of foot soldiers in a tight, top-down hierarchy. Aaron had the confidence in himself and in his bosses for him to get on the mic without hesitation and say,
1: Apollo 12 Houston, try SCE to auxiliary, over.
0: This was a long way from a routine failure It had been simulated briefly over a year before, but lunar module pilot Alan Bean remembered it somehow. And when he reached out to find that obscure switch and flicked it over to auxiliary, the fuel cells instantly came back online, telemetry began to flow back to Houston, and mission commander Pete Conrad could stop glancing over at that abort button. Aaron and Bean's quick thinking had saved the mission earning the Ecom desk jockey enough brownie points to achieve the priceless award of being called a steely-eyed missile man in front of the entire launch team. Bean also had saved the mission, which was good, because a few days later, Alan Bean was gonna screw the pooch big time. Alan Bean, quite by accident, you understand, was about to make Apollo 12 the forgotten landing.
1: You're coming into the picture now, Pete. That may have been a small one that that's along
0: with Fuby. Now, one of the great hypes regarding the second lunar landing was that Apollo 12 would not carry those blurry black and white TV cameras, but rather new state-of-the-art gear that would show the surface of the moon in living color. Conrad, Bean, and the lunar module Intrepid made a brilliant, absolutely pinpoint landing just close enough for them to walk 600 feet or so to visit the unmanned Surveyor-3 lander, which had landed back in April of 1967. It was the first and only time that humans have been able to visit the space probes that came before them and paved the way. Intrepid landed in the southeastern corner of Oceanus Procellarum, that's the ocean of storms. Now this particular piece of real estate had been visited three times before Apollo 12. The Surveyor-3 probe from 1967, which they examined, The Soviet Luna 5 mission in 1965 would have made the first soft landing on the moon, but the retro rockets failed, and it just dug another crater to fly over.
1: Launch of the Ranger missions was accomplished by an Atlas-Agena combination from Cape Kennedy.
0: First of them was America's Ranger 7, which in July of 1964, also crashed into the moon, but that was the mission plan for Ranger 7. It was designed to crash in the moon.
1: NASA's Ranger 7s impacted the moon in a pre-selected target area.
0: It also took the first image of the moon obtained from an American space probe and 4,300 more of them as it rocketed into the moon at 2,300 miles per hour. The last image recorded objects about a foot wide. This traffic jam in the southeastern end of the ocean of storms had drawn so much attention that the IAU, the International Astronomical Union, a multinational consortium of leading astronomers, which is, among other things, responsible for approving every single name on every single feature that we discover out in space. Well, the IAU decided that after four missions and two craters, that particular patch of ancient lava would henceforth be named Mare Cognitum the known sea. Now, unfortunately, we didn't get to see that. Apollo 12 is the missing mission for so many of us because as Bean followed Conrad down the ladder to become the fourth man on the moon, his first task was to set up the brand new, widely hyped color camera. But Alan Bean, who understandably was probably pretty excited, ended up missing a procedure and he removed the lens cover before he had the camera securely in place that camera got pointed for a few moments directly at the Sun. The delicate electronics in the camera fried almost immediately, and we didn't see anything on Apollo 12. That means for most of us, it's like it never happened. That's the power of the image for you. Now, Needless to say, the next mission, Apollo 13, would be historic. Apollo 13 was the first and only mission to the Moon that I clearly saw on the pad go off with my own eyes. Also, there was some kind of an explosion apparently. I could afford to be a little flip about this because there's nothing I can add to that magnificent work that Ron Howard, Tom Hanks, Ed Harris, Bill Paxton, Kevin Bacon, and Gary Sinise did on the movie Apollo 13 based on the book Lost Moon by Apollo 13 commander Jim Lovell. It is hands down the best nonfiction space movie ever made. The crew of Apollo 13, there. Uh... Faulty wiring to an oxygen tank caused an explosion in the service module, crippling power, bleeding oxygen, and basically turning the command module, Odyssey, into a dead spacecraft.
1: OK, Houston, we've had a problem here. This is Houston, say again, please. we have got a main
0: B bus But the lunar module, Aquarius, was a completely separate spacecraft, conveniently docked to the nose of the Odyssey, Aquarius would become the lifeboat that would get those three men, Jim Lovell, Jack Swigert, and Fred Hayes, back to Earth, but not before going to the moon first. Now, huddled inside the LEM, the three men were at high risk of suffocation, not from lack of oxygen, there was plenty of that but from the accumulation of carbon dioxide, which is normally removed from the air by chemical scrubbers. The LEM was designed for two men over three days. It didn't have the scrubbers that the command module had, which was enough for three men in eight or nine days. But with the fuel cells on the command module not working, that simply wasn't gonna help. Now, there were plenty of canisters in the command module, but they were designed only for the command module, the ones in Aquarius, had a completely different intake. Now, probably my favorite moment of the movie, engineers take the canisters, they take socks, tape, lunar sample bags, every single thing actually on board both spacecraft, and they just dump it onto a table in a conference room. And one of the guys holds up the square peg of the command module canister to the round hole of the lunar module scrubber and basically says, we have to make this fit into this with that. That scene is so critical to understanding how we got to the moon, because it was a combination of intricately laid out, precisely detailed and painstakingly rehearsed procedures for every single type of emergency that NASA could imagine. But here they were with an emergency that they couldn't have imagined. And the ability to switch mental gears from rigid adherence to precise procedures and switching suddenly to kind of a freestyle, out of the box, throw the spaghetti on the wall to see if it sticks kind of improvisation, well, that encapsulates the success of the entire program. And there's one more thing that that movie gets exactly right. And that's flight director Gene Kranz's attitude. Failure is not an option. And that's not just something printed below the logo of some insurance company. He means it literally. And don't come to me until you can find a way to get these guys back home in one piece. You know, there's another aviation story I heard when I was learning to fly. Chuck Yeager once found himself in a flat spin. It was unrecoverable. Everything he tried to do with power, rudder, ailerons, nothing was working, and he's heading downstairs like an anvil. Yeager eventually found a way to recover. Now, the way I heard it, he said essentially that he couldn't get the plane out of the flat spin, but he did think it was possible to flip it over into an inverted spin, and he knew how to get out of one of those. Who thinks like this? We're in horrible shape, and we have to make it worse in order to make it better. Ignition sequence start. Five, four, three, two, one, zero.
1: Launch, commit, liftoff. We have liftoff with Apollo 14. Three minutes past the hour.
0: Apollo 14, launched on January 31, 1971, was the last of the H missions and was headed to Fra Mauro, which was Apollo 13's intended landing site. But this was no longer a relatively safe and mostly secure flat and featureless lunar sea, Fra Mauro, was much older, one of the lunar highlands, which means that the Apollo 14 photos are the first to show actual terrain. There are hills in these pictures, rolling hills and not very tall. This actually adds a great deal of reality to that magnificent desolation that Aldrin described on Apollo 11, and which we didn't see, thanks to a blinded TV camera on Apollo 12. Mission Commander Alan Shepard had waited patiently for 10 years for this moment. If NASA had not decided to test the Mercury capsule with HAM, Astrochimp 65, then Alan Shepard would have been the first man in space. But that delay allowed Yuri Gagarin that well-deserved honor. That was a pretty tough hit for Shepard back in 1961. When he told his wife that the first man in space was standing in that very room, Luis said, who let a Russian in here? That Russian, Yuri Gagarin, was killed in a training flight in 1967. He died before witnessing the first moon landing with Apollo 11 and just nine months before Apollo 8 made the first journey into lunar orbit. Alan Shepard, however, was alive and well 10 years later and he got to walk on the moon. He was the oldest man to walk on the moon and the only one of the original Mercury seven astronauts to do so. Alan Shepard had been grounded due to an inner ear condition for most of those 10 years. So he joined fellow Mercury astronaut, the also-grounded Deke Slayton, as chief of the astronaut office in 1963. Now, this was a valuable place to be during that 10-year hiatus. And when a new surgical procedure corrected his inner ear problem, Shepard was back in the rotation. Even if your business happens to be going to the moon, it's always good to have friends in high places. And sometimes, it's not just what you know, it's who you know. Fellow Mercury 7 astronaut Gordon Cooper, who, unlike Shepard, flew a Gemini mission, Gemini 5, with Pete Conrad, who just returned from the moon on Apollo 12, had been slated to be the commander of the backup crew for Apollo 10. Now, using the usual rotation schedule, that would have made Cooper the mission commander for the planned moonwalk of Apollo 13. Slayton had his doubts about Cooper. Cooper was rumored to have a lax attitude towards training, having had to be repeatedly coaxed into the Gemini simulator, or so it was said. So Slayton inserted his deputy Shepard as the commander of Apollo 13. Now, this created its own set of problems, and not just with a justifiably furious Leroy Gordon Cooper. Shepard actually asked Jim McDivitt, commander of Apollo 9, and the first man to test the lemon in Earth orbit, if he would join his team as the lunar module pilot for a walk on the moon as part of Apollo 13. McDivitt declined with thanks. He flat out turned him down, on the grounds that Shepard lacked the experience to command a moon mission. Now the response of the first American in space to this refusal on the part of Jim McDivitt is not recorded. But McDivitt had a point. Shepard could use more training, so Deke Slayton had a talk with Jim Lovell who had been on the first flight to orbit but not land on the moon on Apollo 8 back in 1968. Lovell had headed up the backup crew for Apollo 11, which again, going by the standard rotation protocol, made Lovell commander of Apollo 14. Deke Slayton asked Lovell if he and his crew would switch missions with Shepard to give Shepard more training time. Now, offered a chance to walk on the moon several months earlier than expected, Lovell agreed to the switch. What could possibly go wrong. Apollo 13 went wrong, and there were more delays as modifications were made to the service module after the near-fatal explosion on Apollo 13. Jim Lovell went to the moon twice, but he never landed on it. And for the rest of their lives, every time Shepard and Lovell would find themselves in each other's company, Lovell would ask, jokingly but a little wistfully also, if Shepard wanted to switch missions back to the original schedule. Meanwhile, Gordo Cooper was pushed back to the later Apollo missions and he could already see the writing was on the wall. Apollo 20 was canceled due to lack of funding. There were serious doubts about Apollo's 18 and 19. So L. Gordon Cooper resigned from NASA and the Air Force on July 31st, 1970. He was battling Parkinson's disease when he died of a heart attack at his home in Ventura, California on October 4, 2004. That was the 47th anniversary of the launch of Sputnik 1, which had started the whole thing. Dying in 2004 was not the end of Gordo's space flights, not by a long shot. Gordo Cooper went on to fly aboard a capsule that was lost in the mountains for several weeks. Gordo Cooper was aboard SpaceX's Falcon 1 rocket when it exploded two minutes into its flight. Gordo Cooper flew on a successful mission to the International Space Station. Gordo Cooper was burned into incandescence as he re-entered the atmosphere without a spacesuit. Joining him on two of those missions, presumably as flight engineer, was Montgomery Scott, Scotty on the original Star Trek series played by actor James Doohan. Both Doohan's and Cooper's ashes repeatedly failed to be released in outer space. Both men had been battling tough diseases prior to their deaths. Neither one of them were quitters or complainers. Now both finally made it to Earth orbit on SpaceX's unmanned second mission to the International Space Station on May 22nd of 2012 both of them re-entered the Earth's atmosphere about a month later and some remains of Mercury and Gemini astronaut Gordo Cooper and chief engineer Montgomery Scott are still up there and they always will be but Alan Shepard got his moon mission the Apollo 14 lunar module and Terry's undocked with the command service module Kitty Hawk, piloted by Stuart Rusa, and began its descent to Fra Mauro. Now, after hand-flying Antares even closer to its intended landing spot than any other Apollo mission before or since, Alan Bartlett Shepard Jr. stepped off of the footpad and onto the lunar surface in utter silence, his mind on other things apparently, because he'd walked several yards away from the LEM before remarking quietly as if to himself, And it's been a long way, but we're here. Now, apparently preparing for his imminent retirement from the space program, Shepard took a couple of swings without a tee in golf's all-time most difficult sand trap. There we go. Miles and miles and miles. That swing was captured on tape by his lunar module pilot, Ed Mitchell. Rookie astronaut Edgar Dean Mitchell only made a single flight into space, but it was a doozy. He was the sixth human to walk on the moon, was his only flight, and so ended the H series of Apollo missions. Now, Apollo 15 was supposed to be an H mission, but as that deep, dark shadow of budget cuts and waning enthusiasm stretched ever longer in the lunar twilight, NASA realized that it had better fly while the flying was still good. Neil Armstrong's fellow crew member on Gemini 8, Dave Scott, who'd publicly marveled at Armstrong's skill and coolness under pressure, and who then went on to pilot the command module in Earth orbit back on Apollo 9, was selected as mission commander for this first of the long duration Apollo J missions. Rookies Al Warden, command module pilot, and Jim Irwin as lunar module pilot would join Scott on this all Air Force flight. They had named the lunar module Falcon after the mascot of the Air Force Academy. The command module, They christened Endeavour. The space race was back on in earnest by this time, but not against the Soviets. It was against the United States Congress, which grew more and more intolerant of what many saw as a mission that had already been accomplished. Apollo 15 was sent to Hadley Rill, a genuinely mountainous region dominated by Hadley Rill itself. It's a smooth, sinuous fault line in the lunar surface. Looks a lot like a dry arroyo, but it's the result of subsurface collapse rather than ancient flowing water.
1: Four zero,
0: four one, four five, four seven. This three-day mission had a lot of ground to cover. There was absolutely no way to accomplish all of the scientific objectives on foot. But that didn't stop Scott from having his way regarding sleep cycles. Determined not to mar the mission with three full days of jet lag, Scott landed the Falcon at Hadley Rill in the late afternoon and insisted on some solid sleep prior to their first EVA. Now, this was made much more comfortable by removing the pressure suits completely. They were the first Apollo crew to spend time on the lunar surface in their shirt sleeves. This strategy apparently paid off. During their three-day stay on the lunar surface, Scott and Irwin took three road trips in their lunar rover, one of them taking them right to the edge of Hadley Rill itself. Together, they spent an incredible 18 hours outside of the Lem, bringing home 170 pounds of moon rocks, including the Genesis rock, named in the belief that it might have been a part of the moon's primordial crust formed 4.4 billion years ago in a solar system that only began 4.6 billion years ago. Now, alas, this proved not to be the case. The Genesis rock, sample number 15 for 15, pretty remarkable coincidence when you consider it was for Apollo 15, was later discovered to be a mere 4 billion years old. Well, in my left hand, I have a a feather. In my right hand, a hammer. Apollo 15 also gave mission commander Dave Scott a great chance to prove Galileo correct with his anti-intuitive idea that all objects fall at the same rate. Because when you get rid of the air that slows the feather down, the feather and the hammer hit the lunar surface at exactly the same time.
1: How about that? That uh, <laughs> that Mr. Galileo was correct in his findings.
0: Now, since that camera on the lunar rover could be controlled from the ground in Houston, Scott and Irwin parked the buggy at what was presumably a safe distance away from the Falcon, and the buggy recorded the first video of an Apollo Ascent stage lifting off the surface of the moon. Good automatic. Aside from a shower of golden debris from the four legged descent stage, there was no rocket flame, no smoke, nothing would come out of this event, both smoke and flame being a product of a rocket engine firing on or near the Earth's surface. Falcon's second stage climbed skyward like a scalded ass ape, which would be test pilot jargon for rapidly. The instruction to tilt the camera up as it took off, had to be sent from Earth one and a quarter seconds before the launch occurred. The radio signal would take that long to get to the rover, moving at a mere 186,262 miles per second. Speed of light's not just a good idea, it's the law. Apollo 15's lunar module pilot, Jim Irwin, repeated the remarkable story of his immediate predecessor, Apollo 14's Ed Mitchell. On his one and only trip into space, Jim Irwin would not only get to walk on the moon, he'd get to drive on it. Unlike his commander, Dave Scott, who, as we record this, is one of only four surviving men to have walked on the moon, Jim Irwin died of a heart attack in 1991. Only 61 years old, he was the first member to leave the most exclusive club in human history. John Young, who'd orbited the moon during the dress rehearsal flight of Apollo 10, got his second trip back as commander of Apollo 16, bound for the even older, even more mountainous terrain of the Descartes Highlands. Aqui, okay. 4- Ken Mattingly, pulled from the crew of Apollo 13 three days prior to launch due to a suspected case of German measles that he never actually contracted, he would fly as command module pilot. On a ship named Casper of friendly ghost fame, the one departure from serious ship names after Snoopy and Charlie Brown modules flew the lunar landing dress rehearsal on Apollo 10. It was largely through Ken Mattingly's tireless efforts in a cold, wet, and dark command module simulator that the crew of the flight he'd missed, Apollo 13, made it back alive and well. Rookie Charlie Duke would make it a hat trick for Lunar Module pilots. Apollo 16 would be his only flight into space aboard the more impressively named Orion. The Descartes Highlands would prove as varied and interesting as Hadley Rill had been. And if John Young and Charlie Duke didn't encounter a rock as old as the Genesis rock from Apollo 15, they sure as hell ran into one a good deal larger. Look at the
1: size of that big. (laughs) It is a
0: biggie, isn't it? House rock, a medium-sized boulder that had rolled down from the Descartes hills millions and millions of years ago. Makes quite an impression when seen with an actual human to provide some sense of scale. Speaking of impressions, it was boulders like that one that had littered the area that Apollo 11 was landing for before Neil Armstrong did what he was paid to do. Orion left the moon in as spectacular a fashion as it had arrived. There's a frame, a still frame from the video of the liftoff taken from the Apollo 16 rover that looks like nothing so much as the inside of Studio 54 in New York, with golden rays of debris blasting out like a spotlight on a mirror ball. John Young would return home and wait almost as long as Alan Shepard did for his next flight. 10 years after leaving the moon, John Young would take the left seat as commander of STS-1, the first space shuttle flight riding Columbia into orbit, accompanied by Rob Crippen. Young would take Columbia up again a few years later on STS-9. John Young, number nine of the 12 men who've walked on the moon, is one of only three astronauts who've flown to the moon twice. He was chief of the astronaut office from 1974 until 1987, and he is the only person in history to have flown four different types of spacecraft, the Gemini Capsule, the Apollo Command Module, the Apollo Lunar Module, and the Space Shuttle. John Young died from complications from pneumonia in Houston, Texas, on January 5, 2018, at age 87. And he is sorely missed. And that left one more chance. Everything left to do would have to be done on Apollo 17. Apollo 20 had been canceled some time before. In fact, Richard Nixon had wanted to cancel Apollo 16, 17, 18, and 19, but Office of Management and Budget Deputy Director Caspar Weinberger, who would go on to become Ronald Reagan's Secretary of Defense, managed to salvage Apollo 16 and 17. Apollo 18 was at one time targeted for the massive, spectacular terrace crater named Copernicus. Apollo 19 fell to budget cuts as well. One of its potential landing sites was the most spectacular formation on the entire moon, Tycho, whose brilliant white rays of ejecta spread out for a thousand miles in every direction. But none of this was to be. Apollo 17 would be humanity's last trip to the moon so far.
1: We have ignition, two, one, zero. We have a off. we have a liftoff at-
0: Five is moving off the pad. Apollo 17 also brought the most bitter disappointment of the entire Apollo program. 17, Houston, you are go for orbit. Go for orbit. I'm not talking about the mission. Apollo 17 was the most spectacular success of them all. But for yours truly, by now all of 13 years old and just three weeks short of that first telescope when Apollo 13 launched on December 7th, 1972, well, that night turned out to be the single most bitter disappointment of my entire life. Apollo 17 was not the last flight of a Saturn V, but it was the first and only night launch of the world's biggest Roman candle, and I, son of a hotel manager still living in Bermuda, was going to be directly under it when it dropped its first stage in an explosion of light and vapor. So, there I sat outside the house, waiting. It was scheduled for liftoff around 10 p.m. Eastern time, which would make it 11 p.m. local time in Bermuda. I think I got set up around 9.30. I wasn't going to miss this. No way. I sat watching the Western horizon as liftoff time approached. I didn't have a radio and the internet was still 30 years in the future. I was sure about the launch time, so I waited. And when launch time came and went, I thought there must be some kind of launch delay. So I waited some more alone with my mom and dad attending an Apollo 17 party at the hotel, which was just about a quarter of a mile away. And then I waited some more got to be so desperate that I would see a distant airplane and wonder if I hadn't oversold myself. I waited till about 1130. And then I waited till midnight. And then I waited till 1am, which was the latest I'd ever been up. Now, having a launch scrubbed wasn't all that uncommon. I'd just get the new launch date in the newspaper the next day and I just prayed it'd be another night launch. So I packed up my chair and my sleeping bag and my drinks and my snacks and I went to bed. Actually. I first went to the bathroom. I was utterly convinced that going to relieve myself would be what actually triggered the Apollo 17 launch sequence. So I went to bed that night, disappointed, certainly, but hardly crushed. I was woken up about an hour later by my mother. I remember her exact words. She said, Billy, wasn't that simply unbelievable? That was the most beautiful thing I have ever seen. What was the most beautiful thing you've ever seen? And right at that instant, I could feel my internal organs withering into grapes as it slowly began to dawn on me the horrible truth of what had actually happened.
1: Just like daylight here at Kennedy Space Center, the Saturn V is moving off the pad.
0: After a delay of two and a half hours, Apollo 17 cleared the pad at 12.33 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. That would be about 1.33 in the morning where I was, about 15 minutes after I'd fallen asleep. Now, I knew I'd fallen asleep during the launch because my mom had told me that it had been bright enough to turn night into day, and I'm sure I would have remembered something like that. You know, I think that was the moment I had my first genuine adult thought, and that was this. There are some things that happen, and they can't unhappen, no matter how much you want them to. It was over. It was done. I missed it. Period. The end. still not over it. Now, as I said, Apollo 17 was simply a magnificent mission. Gene Cernan, who'd flown to within 10 miles of the moon back on Apollo 10's final rehearsal, finally got his chance. He would be the 11th man to walk on the moon, and he'd be the last man to leave it. Joining him on the lunar surface was Apollo's only full-time scientist, geologist Harrison Schmidt, known as Jack. He was rotated to Apollo 17 when it was finally clear that this was going to be the last chance to get an actual geologist on the moon he'd be the fourth person in a row to make their one and only trip into space a walk on the moon.
1: Hey Houston, the Challenger has landed. Mister Challenger, that's super.
0: They would ride the last lunar module, Challenger, to a truly spectacular landing spot, the taurus littrow Valley. They would set Challenger down on a small plateau surrounded by towering peaks, the South Massive, the North Massive, East Massive, and the Sculptured Hills. From there, They would strike out in three directions, three separate rover excursions, one for each day they spent on the Moon. Now, during those three days, Apollo 17 would break pretty much every record in the book. Longest time spent on the Moon, longest moonwalks, largest collection of lunar samples, and most time spent in lunar orbit. Ron Evans would get a chance to see the Earth rise above the Moon 75 times. Now, just as they were getting into their rover for the first EVA, Cernan accidentally knocked one of the fenders off the rear of the rover. Now, this wasn't as trivial as it sounded. In the vacuum of the lunar surface where dust sprayed like water, the wire mesh rear tires might throw up enough dust to make driving the rover impossible. A couple of laminated moon charts kind of bent into an arc and duct taped to the rear wheel pretty much solved that problem. And so off they went the LEM sending back real-time images as they bounded over the hills, carefully skirting small craters with the orange fenders, the continual bumps and jars, and the plain euphoric fun. When the LEM was in motion on Apollo 17, it felt more like a Dukes of Hazard episode than a scientific expedition. And parenthetically, may I just add, if you're gonna fake the moon landing, I'm not entirely sure why driving 12 miles in a buggy sending back live footage it'd be something you really want to do. I got a
1: beautiful picture of you guys up down there. Let me tell you, Bob, this flag is a beautiful picture. That's
0: beautiful. Now, Jack Schmidt was a top-notch geologist, but whether or not that had anything to do with it, he certainly seemed to fall down a lot. Time and again, he'd just pitch face forward onto the surface, sprays of dust flying through the air like water through a garden sprinkler. At times, they seemed almost giddy, these two men. They actually broke into song together.
1: I was rolling on the moon one day in, in a
0: merry But Jack Schmidt earned his pay on that mission. As a geologist, it was his trained eye that caught a small patch of color among the subtle shades of gray and beige. There is orange soil.
1: Well, don't move it till I see it.
0: It's all over. Orange! Oh, it was orange soil, all right, burnt orange, appropriately enough. When later analyzed, scientists discovered that this orange soil was the result of an ancient fire fountain on the moon. Best estimate is that 3.64 billion years before, a volcanic eruption on the then active moon blew millions of drops of lava into the lunar vacuum, which cooled rapidly into very fine, almost circular grains. But what would we have found? I wonder if Congress and the president hadn't been so short-sighted. What might we have seen walking inside the world's biggest football stadium, the 60-mile-wide, two-and-a-half-mile-deep terraced crater called Copernicus? The meteorite that made the crater Tycho hit hard enough to send plumes of white subsurface material halfway around the moon. We didn't get to see it. Now, earlier, I spent a little time on a photo of Neil Armstrong, his face reflecting the joy and relief of meeting the challenge that President Kennedy had set for the nation. It was the look of a man who'd been first to walk on another planet. There's a similar picture of Gene Cernan, the last man to walk on the moon. The most famous one is of him smiling after their final moonwalk, but the one I like best. Has Cernan well off to the side. In fact, his eyes are kind of a bit out of focus. He doesn't have the intensity that Armstrong's picture showed, probably because after three days of working on the moon, he'd gotten a bit used to things. But here's the thing I love about that picture. In the center, there are two space helmets, Cernan's with the commander's red stripe and Schmidt's all-white helmet beside it. Both helmets are resting on a pile of filthy gray spacesuits that are packed tightly into a corner of the limb Obviously taken later than the picture in the suit, Cernan is now wearing what appears to be a pair of similarly filthy long johns if it weren't for the heart monitors just visible inside his collar you'd think he'd come out of a west virginia coal mine and that is what so impresses me with that image cernan's face is absolutely black he looks exactly like a coal miner at the end of a long shift that face and those filthy suits had originally been so spotlessly white when they entered the command module america that they look almost sterile clean enough to operate in which means that all of that grime and dirt, every microscopic grain of it, was moon dust. Humans have been staring up at the moon since before they became humans. Both Russia and America had been in such a mad, risky, and expensive race to get some of this precious stuff back to the Earth. But by the time the Apollo program had been cut short, there was so much moon dust on Cernan's and Schmidt's faces, that there's no question from Gene Cernan's expression that, what he wanted most from the lunar soil that they'd been collecting was a long, hot shower to wash all of it down the drain.
1: 99, proceeded. Three, two, one, ignition. <laughs> right away, that Houston. That's for good.
0: And that was the end of Apollo. In
1: honor of all those people who have worked so hard to put us here and put every other crew here and to make the country, United States, and mankind.
0: Something different than it was. They managed to salvage some of the remaining hardware. One of the three remaining Saturn Vs had its third stage hollowed out and heavily modified. It alone, among her 14 sisters, lifted off without the familiar taper of the command and service modules beneath the spike of the emergency escape tower. Now because of those modifications, that last Saturn V reminded you a lot of the C-8 Nova, that beefier, even larger moon rocket that had never been built. You see, in a last ditch effort to keep the space program together while the space shuttle was being developed, NASA had managed to convince Congress of something new. Skylab, they called it, America's first space station. There's a full scale copy of it in the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum. Standing beneath it, it seems absolutely ludicrous that something that enormously large could ever get off the ground. And of course, that was just the top stage. The bulk of the Saturn V, the massive first and second stages, lie out at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean off the coast of Florida. The ruins of 13 first stages of the most powerful rocket ever built lie pretty close to one another in the deep and cold Atlantic. The thin outer skins of the rocket and the delicate fuel tanks were shattered into pieces when they impacted the water. But the five F-1 engines that lifted all of it, the second and third stages, the command and service module, the two-stage LEM, the solid rocket motors on the top of the escape tower, and especially all of the fuel needed to hurl those men and that equipment to the surface of the moon and bring those crews back safely every single person that ever flew in a Saturn V came home in one piece. The whole awe-inspiring 360-foot-long, six and a half million pounds of it. Each one of those F1 engines, still the most powerful engine ever built, turned out to be pretty sturdy. Now, if you take 13 successful Saturn V launches, each with five main engines apiece, you come to the realization that there are 65 of those huge, magnificent monsters out there lying on the floor of the Atlantic, each one of them, with an exhaust bell large enough for Werner von Braun to stand in it, arms raised above his head, jump as high as he could, and not have any chance of touching the other side. Now, Skylab had some serious problems. One of the solar arrays tore loose on deployment and a heat shield went with it, leaving the station with a huge loss of electrical power and a toasty 200-degree Fahrenheit interior. Eleven days later, the first manned mission arrived, commanded by Apollo 12 veteran Pete Conrad, the third man to walk on the moon. Two,
1: one, zero. we have launch commit, and we have liftoff. The clock is running, and Skylab has cleared the tower.
0: Their Apollo capsule, launched by the ever-reliable, if half-sized, Saturn 1B, kind of lifted off from what looks like a baby's high chair, actually, made an extensive inspection as they flew around the crippled station. Skylab looked like a piece of space junk, frankly. There was a tangle of wires where one of the two main solar panels had supposed to be just been simply ripped away during the flight. Raw exposed metal, looking kinda rusted without the missing heat protection panel, was lining one side of the station and then on the other side, the other main solar panel was just barely deployed like a bird with a folded wing. It appeared to be completely unsalvageable, but turns out, there was a little of that Apollo spirit still left in the bag. Conrad and his crew made eight attempts at docking with Skylab. All of them failed, so the crew got into their pressure suits, they disassembled the docking probe, bent a few things here, hammered a few things there, put it back together again, and then tried again. Turns out this time it worked. Now, it was still literally an oven in there, but an engineer named Jack Kinsler, known throughout NASA as Mr. Fix-It, had, as usual, come up with a brilliant solution. He designed a highly reflective parasol, which, when collapsed, could be pushed out through a science access hatch. Now, when extended, it covered almost all of the exposed surface and dropped the temperature down to manageable levels. Although, every picture of Skylab ever taken after this fix looks like there's a homeless man who pitched a rough canvas tent for him to crawl under. Next, the crew suited up again. They exited the station, and armed with long levers, they began to work at the jammed solar panel, like sailors armed with harpoons dismembering a whale. The panel eventually popped free. And though still missing an entire bank of solar panels, Skylab was at last open for business. Conrad and his crew remained aboard for 28 days. His lunar module pilot on Apollo 12, Alan Bean, the man who'd burned out the TV camera, led the second manned mission to Skylab. They remained there for 60 days, while the third and final crew extended that stay to 84 days. But as its orbit decayed, it was clear that this massive hunk of metal that went up was about to come back down again and soon. Well, naturally, a media frenzy ensued, People hawked hats and t-shirts with target bullseyes on them. And Skylab repellent came with a money-back guarantee should it fail to keep the space station from falling on your head. And then, on orbit number 34,981, Skylab returned to Earth in a spectacular fireball, landing not too far from Perth, Australia, on July 11th of 1979, just a few days short of the 10th anniversary of the moon landing. It's actually rather a rude reply to the town that it turned on all of the lights it had to welcome John Glenn orbiting above in Friendship 7 back in 1962. And then on July 15, 1975, the last Apollo mission had the last Apollo capsule ride the last Apollo rocket, the final Saturn 1B, into orbit to rendezvous with the two-man Soviet Soyuz launched seven hours earlier.
1: Commit. We have a liftoff. All engines building
0: up thrust. I was at Cape Kennedy for that launch. Detente, relaxation, had arrived as the former space race adversaries shook hands in orbit. Deke Slayton, who'd become the only Mercury Seven astronaut to not fly a mission due to medical reasons, finally got his ride 16 years later. The man who almost single-handedly determined who was going to fly what and when for so many years died of a brain tumor in June of 1993. He was 69 years old. Now, of course, you've got to put together the American docking system with the Russian docking system. They're not the same. And that creates an engineering problem and a political problem. The engineering problem is very simple to solve. The political problem is both sides want to be the docker, and neither side wants to be the docky. So the engineers create this kind of three-petaled flower that goes together in such a way that just by looking at it, no one can really tell who's doing the pitching and who's doing the catching. And then, finally, came the space shuttle. Now, I only have one thing to say about the 135 individual missions flown by five vehicles between April of 1981 and July of 2011. Originally designed to be flown aloft on a manned carrier aircraft and to be capable of landing and returning to space from any airport found in any major city, the space shuttle, like Apollo, was slowly dismembered by budget cuts. More and more cost-cutting design, band-aids, and jury rigs had to be implemented just to keep the program alive. Seven astronauts died when Challenger exploded 72 seconds into its final flight on January 28, 1986, and seven more perished on February first, two 2003, when Columbia disintegrated on re-entry. But the space shuttle itself didn't kill either of those crews. The Band-Aids killed the crews. Burn-throughs of the O-rings on one of the solid rocket boosters destroyed Challenger, and it was the recently installed, more environmentally friendly, insulating foam from the external tank that came loose and punched a hole in the leading edge of Columbia's wing, dooming that crew as well. And neither the solid rocket boosters nor the external tank had been present in that original, elegant design. But worse, much worse, was the fact that both shuttle disasters, like the Apollo 1 fire, had come with plenty of warning. The Apollo 1 crew knew that the Block 1 Apollo capsule was a lemon, if not a death trap. Burn-throughs on the SRBs had happened on multiple flights prior to Challenger's final mission, and foam had been repeatedly observed coming off of the external tank before a chunk finally hit Columbia. This wasn't the NASA I grew up with and loved so dearly. By the time we get to the space shuttle, NASA was run by an army of managers and bureaucrats, not test pilots and engineers. Watching NASA spend 30 years going round and round in the same circles that John Glenn had traced in his phone booth sized capsule back in 1962. It was kind of like a long slow divorce from someone you had truly and deeply loved. Go ahead and break your heart and then they'd promise to change to never do it again and they would change for a while and then those old self-destructive habits would return and they'd break your heart again and you'd forgive them again And then the new promises slowly became broken once more so that when Columbia disintegrated over Texas, I was finally done with the agency whose curving vector logo I had hand doodled hundreds of times. It looked like the space age and everything it represented was dead and gone. But then in 2003, another one of my lifelong heroes brought back that feeling, revolutionary aircraft designer Burt Rutan was as disgusted with the slow pace of the last 30 years as I was, Bert decided that if NASA wasn't gonna make an effort, he's gonna to have to do it himself. Burt set up a meeting with Microsoft co-founder Paul Allen, who wrote a check to Burt's company, Scaled Composites. Bert and his team then went out and built not just a space vehicle, but an entire launch system. They had a ground crew, simulators, static rocket engine tests, the whole shebang. He was aiming for a suborbital flight, not too different really from the one that Ham took, BERT had run up against the same problem that the 375,000 people who'd formed the core of the space race had already encountered. And that problem is this. You want a nice, slick spacecraft to minimize drag on the way up, but you want something as draggy and blocky as possible on the way down. That high drag would keep the heat within reasonable limits. Now, as it turns out, the only thing Burt Rutan could not design and build is a box big enough for him to think outside of. He took that slick aircraft, he carried it to altitude aboard a winged mothership the way God intended, and then he lit that candle and watched it go up like a dart. Spaceship One went up just fine, but this being Burt Rutan, that was not the end of the story on this mission. At the top of the parabola, as it experienced three or four minutes of weightlessness, it kind of ran out of momentum, Burt made the design of Spaceship One break itself in half. He just bent the rear of the ship at right angles to the main body, and that meant that while it went up pointy and first, it came down flat as a pancake. Burt's lifelong friend, Mike Melville, a naturalized U.S. citizen from South Africa, would stop by Mojave Airport, spend a few hours asking Burt a few questions about his new experimental airplane, the very easy, which Mike wanted to build, they hit it off, so Mike never left. He and his wife Sally moved to California, test flying Burt's designs. On July 21st, 2004, Mike Melville, age 64, dropped from the White Knight Carrier aircraft, ignited the solid rocket engine, and hand flew that little star-spangled beauty into by-God outer space. That made him the 434th person to make that trip and get his astronaut wings, but he was the first commercial astronaut in history. You know, I'd watched Apollo 13 lift off from about 20 miles away at Cape Canaveral. But when White Knight taxied past with Spaceship One hanging underneath, I ran forward from a friend's hangar like everybody else did, and I gave him a thumbs up and I touched the wingtip as it went past. Mike Melville had opened a window, was waving a small American flag. That particular space mission belonged to all of us. And it's the signal honor of my life to become personal friends with both Mike Melville and Burt Rutan. You know, my all-time favorite picture of myself was taken after my first ride in one of Burt Rutan's long-easy experimental aircraft. But Spaceship One was 15 years ago. Virgin Galactic took over the program and they have yet to fly their first passengers. People my age can get pretty cranky with this generation of millennials when we're talking about the space age and we're cranky because I should have been doing this 50th anniversary special from Saturn. That's why. Some people today, people who weren't around to see what we saw, dismiss the whole thing as either a fake or a fluke. Like it was some kind of phantasm, an intermission from history. They don't really get it. It's not entirely their fault. They weren't there. But We didn't make any of it up, and it wasn't a pipe dream. There are flags on the moon, the first of which was planted half a century ago. As we record this, only four of the 12 men that walked on the moon are still with us. One of them is Buzz Aldrin, Dr. Rendezvous, who could do the orbital mechanics in his head. Buzz had had some problems after Apollo 11, but who wouldn't? Now, just think about it for a minute. You work your entire life to do the toughest thing ever accomplished. And then you do it. And then you come home. You're 39 years old and you just walked on the moon. Now what? What are you going to do for the next 50 years? Now, as I write this, Buzz is still sprightly and as enthusiastic as spaceflight as always. And he's as full of passion as he was during the greatest moment of the post-Apollo era when he got sick and tired of being repeatedly pestered by some lunatic who called this American hero a liar and a coward. And Apollo 11 command pilot, Mike Collins, is still with us as well, at least as late as June of 2019. Apollo 15 commander, Dave Scott, who nearly died before Neil Armstrong could recover the out of control Gemini 8 mission, is still with us. So is Charlie Duke from Apollo 16. And so is Jack Schmidt, the man who saw the orange soil on the surface of the moon. Duke and Schmidt are the youngest of the moonwalkers, and each one of them are 83 years old. America may be the country that got bored with going to the moon, but it is an astonishing thing, really, that virtually every single one of the men that walked on the moon died of old age. Neil Armstrong went west on August 25, 2012, I was driving down the 118 freeway when I heard the news on the radio. After Apollo, Neil retired to private life, teaching engineering at Purdue University. But the most remarkable aspect of this most remarkable man was not his courage, his intellect, or his dedication. It was his humility. For many, many years after Apollo 11, Neil Armstrong personally wrote a letter to every single Eagle Scout to win that title that he had shared as a boy. He originally was very generous with his autograph until he heard that people were selling counterfeit copies online, at which point he became very protective of signing anything at all. But Mike Melville got his signature twice. My favorite story about Neil Armstrong comes from one of the very few times he found himself tangled up in unpleasantries. He threatened to sue someone He threatened to sue his barber, actually. He threatened to sue him because, unbeknownst to Neil, the barber had sold locks of his hair and made about $3,000 off of it. Armstrong demanded that he give that money to charity, and he got his way. NASA has had hundreds of different mission patches over the years, but the one for Apollo 11 is one of a kind. That patch, an Eagle, about to touch down on the lunar surface, the olive branch of peace in its talons, is the only mission logo ever to not name the crew. That was something Neil personally demanded. To his dying day, he maintained that everything they had done, they had done as a team and as a nation. Great men do great things. Immortal men do great things with humility and charity and grace. To me, he was the greatest man to ever live. He made me more than proud to be an American. Neil Armstrong made me proud to be a human being. One last thing. When I heard that cheering in Central Park on that warm night of July 20th, 1969, I said I wouldn't hear a sound like that again for 49 years. Last year, I was watching the first flight of Elon Musk's Falcon Heavy. Outside the control room, a huge crowd of people, almost all of them in their 20s and 30s, had gathered at SpaceX to watch the launch live. Five, four,
1: three, two, one, zero. Take ignition.
0: The sound they made when it cleared the pad was tremendous. The roar they made at first stage separation was heartwarming. But when those two booster rockets dropped simultaneously into the frame to land on pillars of fire, the sound that came out of that room full of millennials was exactly the sound I heard that night in Central Park. It's a different vibe this time. It's less tense, more fun. You know, you launch a candy apple red convertible complete with space-suited mannequin David Bowie on the radio and Don't Panic from the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy on the navigation screen, Well, you're not just doing something that the Chinese, the Russians, the Europeans, and even NASA couldn't do. What you're doing is, you're having a blast. Any company with a mid-Atlantic target barge named, of course I still love you, is going to pick up the Apollo fire and run with it. A company like that is going to land on Mars. Now, right after those twin boosters landed, a 20-something friend of mine texted me and said, this was our moon landing. I respectfully disagree. Landing on Mars will be your moon landing. The young engineers and technicians at SpaceX are gonna do it. And we Apollo kids, contrary to what we all thought just five years ago, are gonna live to see it too. To those young people out there, let me just say this. Your great grandfathers went to the moon using slide rules, genius, and guts. Out past Tranquility Base, there's more orange soil waiting for you. People my age have been waiting for 50 years for someone to go further than we did. So, we Apollo kids, we dare you to do it. Go to Mars, we double dare you. In Apollo 11, what we saw its for Neil. And as for me, I'm your host and writer of this program, Bill Whittle. Thank you so much for giving me a chance to tell you about those amazing years that I got a chance to live through. And thank you very much for joining us for Apollo 11, What We Saw. Apollo 11, What We Saw, is written and presented by Bill Whittle, produced by Robert Sterling, directed by Jonathan Hay, executive producer, Jeremy Boring, our supervising producer is Mathis Glover, and our technical producer is Austin Stevens, post-production producer, Alex Zingaro, Story producer, Jared Sitchell, Edited by Philip Lefessi and Gudjai. Audio recorded by Mike Coromina. Audio mix by Patrick Joyner and Mike Coromina. Graphics by Cole Holloway and Anthony Gonzalez-Clark. Design by Cynthia Angulo. Production assistants, Ryan Love, Sam Thompson, and Mason Dodson. Apollo 11, What We Saw is an esoteric radio theater production. Copyright Esoteric Radio Theater 2019.